It's been that funny week where all the glitter and shiny lights of houses gets put away under the stairs or in the loft. And the discarded, slightly forlorn-looking Christmas trees with wilty needles are on the pavements. Mine is too. At the risk of moving on too quickly, I know we've uh, left the 12 days of Christmas, but I, I wanted just to, to finish a little theme that I'd been thinking about over Christmas. We had a snow-cancelled Sunday, so kind of it's from that thinking, really, about the names of the Lord revealed in Isaiah. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. I came across this witty and I think apt little story about Christmas. It's a poem. I hope I read it well. Towards the night before Christmas and all through the skies, air defenses were up with electronic eyes. Combat pilots were nestled in room-ready beds as enemy silhouettes danced in their heads. Every jet on the apron, every Sam in its tube was triply redundant like linked to the blue cube, and Elnut and AWACS gave coverage so dense that nothing that flew could f slip through our defense. When out of the klaxon arose such a clatter, I turned to the screen to see what was the matter. I dialed up the gain and then quick as a flash, fine adjusted the filters to damp out the hash, and there found the source of the warning we he we'd heeded, an incoming blip by eight escorts proceeded. Alert status read went the word down the wire as we gave every system the codes that meant fire. On Aegis, up Patriot, Phalanx, and Hawk, and scramble our fighters, let's send the whole flock, launch decoys and missiles, use chaff by the yard, get the kitchen sink up, call out the National Guard. They turned toward the target, moved toward it, converged, then the tracks of the radar all finally merged. And the sky was lit up with a demonic light as the foe met his fate in the high Arctic night. So we sent out some recon to look for the debris, yet all they found both on land and on sea were some toys, a red hat, a charred left leather boot, broken sleigh bells, white hair, and a deer's parachute. Now, it isn't quite Christmas with St. Nick's shot down. There are unhappy kids in each village and town. The spirit of Christmas can't hope to evade all the web of defenses we've carefully made. For look how the gadgets we use to protect us in other ways alter, transform, and affect us. They keep us from things that make life worth more living, like love for each other and thoughts of just giving. But a crash program's on, working hard night and day. All the elves are constructing a radar-proof sleigh. So let's wait for next Christmas, in cheer and in health, for the future has hope. Santa's coming by stealth. <laughs> it seems a bit like that. Just this week, in the Orthodox Christmas, the President of Russia, let's have a ceasefire. The irony for Christmas. Just to stop the bloodshed for 
48 hours. Oh, come, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah the prophet, speaking into the 8th century of Israel, the hope of a new king on the throne of the line of David, probably Hezekiah. I referenced some of this back in December when we thought about wonderful counselor. As always, with the age of a new monarch, kind of have raised expectations. Surely this might be different. A new king on the throne, a new reign begun. Whether it's a new president or on the steps of Downing Street when the prime minister outlines what their governance will look like. We still wonder and hope. In this expectation that Isaiah voices, the new king, the expectation, there is this language of prince of peace. That part of the role, not only of being the wonder of counselor, uh, counselor of wonders, of being the one who is wise and who would lead the, the nation in the ways of goodness. Also, this expectation of the prince of peace. What does that mean? This expectation that the king, the ruler, the leader of the nation should be responsible for good social order, for economic prosperity. That's impossible without peace. Those of you who've, of us, those of you who may remember the times of, of conflict and difficulty, whether it goes all the way back to World War II or the Suez Crisis or the Falklands War or the other challenges that we've faced, the Gulf Wars and so forth, recognize that without peace, it's very difficult to bring prosperity, not just for our nation, but for the nations. The prophetic vision is just worth pushing into, Prince of Peace. That word, I'm sure many of you will know, peace is a Hebrew word, shalom, which doesn't just mean the absence of war. Or kind of like, at least there's no bandit coming down the road today. It's broader than that, bigger than that. It means that there is no, there's no kind of looking over your shoulder thinking, we've just got a calm in the middle of a storm. It's actually about wholeness and well-being and the good of all. Not just the absence of war, but ongoing peace. I read from Psalm 72. It's a psalm of, of Solomon, who was perhaps the greatest king in Israel and who could be described as the one in all of Israel's history up to Jesus, who was the one who brought peace. It was an era, a time of Solomon where the, the, the nation was at peace. People could pursue the arts and culture. People could uh, go about their life without fear. There's beautiful pictures of planting vineyards and olive trees and enjoying the fruit. And there's a beautiful prophetic vision of, of people who would die at about 70 accounted as young. They've not died in war. Shalom. But in Shalom, in this understanding of the Prince of Peace, the bringer of peace, there's also this deep sense of the maintenance and governance of all that is fair and would bring prosperity 
in social life. General welfare is caught up in shalom. Jeremiah the prophet, I'm sure you know one of these verses, I'll come to it in a minute. Jeremiah 29, 7, uh, as the prophet writes to people in exile in Babylon, he says, also seek the peace, shalom, and prosperity. It's actually two words translating that word shalom. Seek the peace and prosperity. It's bundled up in shalom of the city to which I've carried you into. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers you too will prosper. Shalom. That famous verse we often quote, 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper. There it is again. Shalom. Plans to prosper you. Shalom you. Bring you welfare and goodness, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Shalom. Even the name King Solomon is a, is, a, is a construct, a derivative of the word for peace. Even the city in which he presided, Jerusalem, that Shalom, is a, rude, a, a word root that has its origins in this Shalom. The reality is, when they looked at the governance of Solomon, though there were many things to laud and celebrate, it wasn't all good. You see, Solomon knew that in order to have a great palace and guard and trappings of power, one needed to raise taxes. Don't we love taxes? And particularly the taxes of Solomon and how similar societies can be often fall upon the most vulnerable, the hardest. For Solomon wanted his soldiers and his armaments, but he used conscripted labor from all Israel. 1 Kings 5, King Solomon conscripted laborers from all Israel, 30,000 men. He sent them off to Lebanon in shifts of 10,000 a month so that they spent one month in Lebanon and two at home. He had 70,000 carriers and 80,000 stone cutters and supervisors who directed the workers. And they removed stone of high grade to provide the foundation of the temple. When Solomon died, this king of great wisdom, he didn't pass on a united kingdom. He passed on a kingdom riven with rebellion and resistance and the desire to move away from the heavy-handed governance Solomon, who was meant to be the peaceful one, had established. 1 Kings 12, Rehoboam went to Shechem and all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam joined, he returned from Egypt. So they went to Jeroboam and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Jeroboam and said to him, your father, Solomon, put a heavy yoke on us now, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us and we will serve you. And they don't. And the nation of Israel divides. What was meant to be prosperity, peace, even in one of the greatest kings, led to oppression, injustice, the haves and the have-nots, the hungry and the well-fed, the cold and the prosperous. 
Solomon knew it was meant to be. Psalm 72, we read, verse 3, May the mountains bring prosperity, shalom, there's that word again, to the people. The hills, the fruit of righteousness. Verse 7, In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity, shalom, abound till the moon is no more. This promise of peace in the practice of justice for the poor and the needy, for the general prosperity of people, not just the elite or the privileged or the powerful. Now just, I must pause and think you, in thinking that I've turned left-wing socialist, Corbynista amongst the ranks. No. But I do want to point to Jesus. Let us hear his word in 2023. Isaiah in chapter 2 has this hope and this vision. I think all of us, deep down, have this sense of what is right and wrong, of justice, of recognizing, because we've read the scriptures and we see, if we see the downtrodden and the oppressed being further squashed and squished, we kind of think this isn't right. There's something in us that reacts when we see the bombs and the calamity and the bloodshed and the, uh, and the, the environment being ravished and homes obliterated and families weeping over plots in the grass. It's not right. Isaiah sums it up, chapter 2. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Don't we long for that? But doesn't it seem a vague hope? Prince of Peace. Even in the prophetic vision of Isaiah 9, there's a sense in which disarmament is forcible not voluntary, the victor is enforcing and there's a sense maybe of, well, is that just? Even for the king who's established, who will burn the, the clothes rolled in blood, they'll be destined for burning fuel for the fire. Everyone knows the victors are the ones who can enforce justice. But this deep theme of peace pervades the scriptures. The later prophets, Jeremiah, moved to speak to the nation. When looking around and seeing that the rule and the governance they were having was far from the expectation and the deep longing and hope of families and societies. Hear what Jeremiah says in chapter 6. From the least to the greatest... All are greedy for gain. Prophets and priests alike all practice deceit. They dress the wound of my people as though it were not serious. Peace, peace, they say, when there is no peace. And yet, Ezekiel, prophet in exile, I will make a covenant of peace with them and rid the land of savage beasts so that they may live in the wilderness and sleep in the forests in safety. And I will make a covenant of peace with them it will be an everlasting covenant. I will establish them and increase their numbers 
and I will put my sanctuary among them forever. And Isaiah in chapter 52, you know this one, I'm sure. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. It's like that poem I read at the beginning. The Christmas hope. But in the true glare of life, we think, really? Pie in the sky, idealistic hope. Not the reality that we know or recognize. And yet deeply woven into us and deeply exemplified through Scripture is peace, shalom, Welfare, prosperity, peace. Maybe it's just that our scope of our horizon is too small. Of course, we can do something about it for those nearest and dearest to us, of our family and our friends. We can bring peace and goodwill at least for a day on Christmas Day, can't we? But probably there was a row about washing up and how many sprouts you didn't eat. And I'm so glad they've left now. And those greetings of peace and goodwill to all people in our Christmas cards, recycled now. The season of peace. Well, we're into January, heads down. And yet, that call and deep conviction. Maybe we can extend some peace into our community. Maybe just to our neighbor or road. But come off it when we consider the challenges of race and borders. Refugees and differences and language and the cross-cultural challenges. and uh, It's too big, too hard. And we move on from the manger and the Prince of Peace. Same as, same world. And yet Christmas drives us and in this, to this new year, I just want us to pause to recognize that Jesus is the peace bringer, the Prince of Peace. He is transformative and the restorer. He fulfills this mandate, this name that is given, the Prince of Peace. He is the son of the true king. It is his responsibility, his governance, his possibility to bring peace. Without him, there is not. Without him, there is no way of reconciliation. With him, there is. But it's not the way of Rome. It's not the way of Babylon. It's not the way of our monarch or the president of the US or any ideology or philosophy. It is Jesus. Jesus is nonviolent. There's nowhere in Scripture that he's demonstrated as violent. He is nonviolent even to giving up his breath, last breath on the cross. It is finished. Prince of Peace. And when we let that settle in, it confounds and it subverts and it defies our notions. 
Because the peace, this prince of peace, this government that extends and will know no bound or end or conclusion is a peace wrought and demonstrated entirely through vulnerability. That it does not impose or coerce or cajole its way. It is peace through vulnerability that confounds and confronts and undoes all the empires. Someone said it like this, the world would never have lasting peace so long as men reserve for war the finest human qualities. Peace, no less than war, requires idealism and self-sacrifice and a righteous and dynamic faith. This Prince of Peace is all over the Christmas story. Luke tells us so much. Did you hear it in the carols, in the voice of the angels? Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. It's not saccharine and sugar-coated. It's not a gingerbread house. Matthew tells that the Magi arrived and they saw Herod the Great, the agent of Rome, And what transpired wasn't peaceful for all the boys under two years old as they were massacred. No wonder that in in the wider church calendar on the 28th of December, the Feast of the Innocents, remembering the brutality and context in which Jesus was born. Of course it's real. But he is the bringer of peace. Again and again, so clearly in Luke, the blessing of people who encounter Jesus and are changed and are recommissioned, re-sent out by Jesus. The sinful woman, the, the, the prostitute, the adulterous one, who discovers this wonder of eternal life and brings the jar of perfume that's expensive and anoints his feet. And there's controversy, oh, you know, why are you doing this? It's abundant and reckless and you could have sold it and given to the poor. Jesus, at the end of that encounter, says to the woman, Luke 7.50, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Chapter 8.48, the woman with the flow of blood. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Chapter 10, when Jesus has gathered his disciples and they've been marveling at at what he's been doing and the miracles and uh, and the challenge of the kingdom of God unfolding. And they're excited by it. And Jesus says, it's now over to you. I'm sending you out. Chapter 10, 5 and 6, when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. If not, it will return to you. In other words, his disciples, his followers are to come and go in peace. Peace that is personal and interpersonal. It connects with others. It's not just a head knowledge, but an actual living out. People to people, person to person, child to parent, parent to grandparent, employee to employer, neighbor to neighbor, husband to wife, sibling to sibling. Peace. Peace that requires the capacity to forgive. What a news resolution that might be for you, for me. Peace requires the readiness to share generously. 
Peace requires the violation of class and social constructs and seeing others not as other, but as brother, sister. Peace requires attentiveness to the vulnerable and the unproductive. Peace requires humility in the face of celebrity, of being the last and least amongst those who think they're first. And peace requires a love of our neighbor, saying, I will put aside my rights and deny oneself. These all mark his presence in his people, the Prince of Peace. Of course, it looks radical. Of course it does. It's not really seen that much around us, is it? But it's kingdom. And as we step out with the Prince of Peace, we step out into a world that celebrates hostility and aggression and greed and conflict and violence. I mean, Jesus sends us out like lambs amongst wolves. Prince of Peace. He conquered the grave in his nonviolence and rose and met the disciples, frightened, unsure, mystified. Luke 24, again, great motif of Luke. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Or in John 20, 19, 21, again, resurrection time. On the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together and the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. Amazing. And a little daunting. Commissioned to be peacemakers and peace bringers. Peace into a world framed with disorder. But he is the Prince of Peace. The Christ child, the one we've worshipped over these last few weeks. And he sends us into this year. Someone said, there comes a point when we have to recognize we're trying to serve two masters and we have to choose which one we will serve. Our arms are just not big enough to carry both cross and the sword. Desmond Tutu, winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, lived through the deep troubles of apartheid. And in his church, after days of turmoil and oppression and injustice and suffering and racism and harassment and brutality, where Archbishop Tutu had been arrested and released, he was let out. And he carried with him fame and notoriety, and he got up to preach in his church, and people were filling the aisles and the pews and every space to hear him. And as he commenced, the police, the South African police, broke in and lined up against the walls with their guns, menacing. Can you imagine that? 
the army coming in now. You're sitting here surrounded by big guns, and threatening faces and intimidation and riot gear and strength. What would you feel? They were there to arrest Tutu in case he said anything considered seditious and anti-government and out of order. And yet Tutu got up and looked at the policemen lined up around the room in their armor. He said, you are powerful. I admit that, very powerful. But I serve a God whose power is greater than any of your power. Then he looked around them, smiled and said, listen, listen, paused. You've already lost. There's no chance for you. So why don't you lay down your guns and come and join the winning side? Well, the effect on the crowd was electric. From being cowed and fearful and frightened, people leapt to their feet, began praising God, dancing in the aisles and singing. And the police just slipped away. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are backed with their flock, the work of Christmas begins to find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace amongst people, to make music in the heart. Let's pray.